Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to an episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests. Fan favorite Parker Thompson, formerly known as Startup Will Jackson, among many other things. Uh, and a very special guest, uh, Tim O'Reilly, entrepreneur, uh, author, publisher, investor. Uh, got, great to have you both on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Awesome. Parker, why don't you sort of begin by explaining why we are convening here today? Yeah. So Tim wrote this wonderful piece in Quartz, I think is worth reading maybe a month or two ago now. Listen back in February. Took us took us some time to get this podcast scheduled. Um, it's worth taking a read. You can read it before you listen to the rest of this podcast at the end if you think it's interesting, but it's worth uh, reading through. So I saw this podcast or I saw this um, article and said, you know, this is a perspective that's worth entrepreneurs considering. And I felt like your audience would um, get a lot out of thinking about the ideas um, that Tim put out there. And maybe some of them they'll like, maybe some of them they'll challenge. But I think either way, um, we're on a default track sometimes in uh, startups and venture capital and everybody's saying the same thing. So it's useful to uh, step back and think about uh, these ideas. Yeah. So maybe we should start with the backstory of why I wrote the article. Please. And it started with Reed Hoffman's Masters of Scale podcast and the episode in which he said, you should be raising as much money as possible. Yeah. And I took exception to that. I said, that's, that's basically the VC talking. That's always good for the VC. It's not always good for the entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, Reed made fairly compelling arguments for it. But as somebody who built a business, where I put in $500 to start it and never raised a penny of venture capital. Like, it's not the only way to do it. So Reed and I end up having a debate, uh, you know, literally that was published. It was on CNBC, uh, where we debated this whole point of blitz scaling as a model versus a, a, you know, a different approach to business that I practiced. And, you know, I think it went pretty well. It was sort of a bit of an Oxford style debate where they asked the audience at the end uh, what they, thought and, and, and I was the clear winner. So there was a lot of sympathy <laughs> in the audience to this point of view. But anyway, but Reed, uh, being who he is, said to me when the book came out, it hadn't come out yet, he said, I hope you write something about it, even though, you know, we disagree. And so I thought, well, I should do that. And, and event, I was, didn't do it quite when the book came out, but, uh, I followed up on it. And, and what I really tried to do was to tell the story not, uh, I didn't really react to that point about you should raise as much money as possible that was in the back of my mind. What I was mainly reacting to was the, the, really the marketing framing of the book. So it was, it was even a little bit less the book, but it was like, you know, blitz scaling this technique, which is, you know, the surest way to create as much value as possible. And I went, what do you mean by value? And what it really means is financial value of your exit. And I, that's not, creating value in a business. You know, when I think of, I was just having a debate with a guy who came in to interview me earlier today. I said, look, early in my career, I published a book and Pierre Omidyar used that book to help start e him start eBay, he told me. And I go, that's creating value. You know, I got 35 bucks for it. And I didn't even get that actually because he probably bought it at a bookstore. So I probably got 17 bucks for it. <laughs> but the world got eBay. You know, and it got everything that Pierre has done since. 
And the, the real act of value creation is making something that has an impact in the world. It is not the amount of money that you make as a result of doing that thing. Right. So, I mean, I think before we get into like uh, exactly what the alternatives are and exactly what's wrong and some of the counterfactual issues you talk about, you should go out of the way in the piece to say, look, blitzscaling isn't bad. It can be very good. It can be appropriate for the right company. So I want to start with a definition of what blitzscaling is and then maybe um, talk about for whom it is appropriate. Mm -hmm. Well, Reed talks about blitzscaling as – uh, effectively burning burning money so that you can move so fast that you effectively overwhelm the market. So it's based on the idea of the Blitzkrieg from, you know, Nazi Germany warfare. And, you know, if you think about companies that have Blitzscaled, Uber is a great example. And, and in, in my response, I talk about Uber and Lyft as uh, examples of Blitzscaling and ask whether this, in fact, is the right model. But it's really being unreasonable. Reed talks about the early days of PayPal, you know, where he said he, he was talking with Peter Thiel uh, in the early days. He said, Peter, if you and I were standing on this rooftop throwing $100 bills off the, uh, you know, the, uh, the roof as fast as our arms could go, we wouldn't be losing money as fast as we are doing it right now. And he said, but it worked. You know, PayPal grew super fast and they, they found product market fit and scale and then they sold for what at the time seemed like a lot of money. And that launched Peter and, and Reed on their, you know, their careers. But the, the thing that I took exception to is this idea that that's a fit for every entrepreneur. And I tried to talk about, well, and actually I should say Reed sort of brings in this idea that all of the great companies were effectively blitzscaled because, of course, they grew very fast. And I, I think there's a bit of a sleight of hand there because I don't think that growing very fast is the same as blitzscaling. Blitzscaling is pouring a bunch of money in and growing faster than the market is ready for in order to seize the, the ground before people are ready. This would be buying market share with negative unit economics. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the essence of blitzscaling because if you look at Google, for example, they grew very fast, but it didn't take very much money. Uh, the total amount they raised was 36 million. And it's actually a kind of a convenient number because that's about the same amount of money as Sidecar, which really pioneered the ride hailing market raised. And of course, actually Reed, I think, makes a horrible mistake because he quotes the Glengarry Glen Ross scene where the, the salesman says, uh, you know, what's, you know, what first prize is, yeah, first prize is uh, Cadillac Eldorado, second prize is second of steak knives, third prize is you're fired. And of course, Sunil, who was the guy who created the category, you know, was the guy who invented it actually 10 years before any of you know, patents back in 2000. He basically got fired effectively, but he raised the same amount of money as Google. And, and so what I was trying to get at is there's a sort of distortion in capital markets today where it's no longer a matter of letting the market develop over time. There's so much cheap capital flowing around that, that basically blitzscaling is an artifact of money chasing returns and still see if we can force this thing. And, and then the question, of course, is, is that, is that really the right thing for most entrepreneurs? And, and that's really the question that I think we're here to discuss. Yeah. So when you think about this article, there's sort of different 
different ways we could think about this uh, problem to the extent you want to characterize it a problem, right? We could think about, so, okay, well, what should venture capitalists be doing differently? We could be thinking about what should policymakers be doing differently, if anything. Yeah. The main audience in my mind was entrepreneurs. I think yeah. it's an interesting article for entrepreneurs. Like, how do you think about where there needs to be change, whether it be policy or cultural? Is it all these areas? Or? I think it, it is all of the areas. I think the very first area is that entrepreneurs have become conditioned, particularly, you know, sort of young, immature entrepreneurs have become conditioned to thinking that the act of starting a business uh, begins with raising money. And there's a great story that I tell, uh, I forget what interview it was from, but of the guys who founded RX Bar, you know, the, the protein bar company, the one that has the, the fancy labels that says, you know, what's in the, in the package. And they, they were from, you know, a, a family that had been in the food business. And these two, two guys had been roommates in college and they're in the family kitchen discussing raising money for their startup. And the, the dad who ran a food business said, you guys should shut the fuck up and go out and sell a thousand bars. So they went out and they sold a thousand bars, you know, by hustling and they found a natural sales network through CrossFit gyms and, and they ended up selling the company for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, four or five years later to Kellogg without, I think, ever having raised money. Yeah, I mean, I think the the sleight of hand Reed might accuse you of there is to say, well, look, that's a CPG company. No self-respecting venture capitalist should be thinking about that because there's not network effects there versus something like Airbnb. He did fund where you said maybe blitzscaling was more appropriate. Right. And he gives a story about Airbnb blitzscaling. And this is a very good, you know, a good case for blitzscaling and one that I Kind of, if I look back at my business career, well, I didn't make that choice at various points and probably, you know, lost some opportunity by that. And that was they had a copycat in Europe uh, who was basically had a whole business of knocking off Internet startups. And and they said, oh, well, if we got to cut them off in the past. We've got to expand in Europe now. And so they raised a bunch of money and went and did that. And that's, I think, a great example of strategic blitzscaling that I think is, is, is one really good case to be made. And I also give the example in my article of a case we're, we're, we're facing with Code for America, the nonprofit that my wife started, uh, where we're working on, uh, automatic expungement of criminal records, say, when, you know, companies, I mean, when states pass a law to decriminalize marijuana or just even for dealing with, Eight people have served their, their sentence and you want to get it off their record and the systems uh, don't really support it. And you look at that and you go, we have a pretty innovative way of doing it that's low cost that demonstrates that this thing can be done easily. And of course, you have a set of competitive vendors in the government market who, you know, try to sell governments, uh, simple things for a lot of money. And so in some sense, we're racing against other people selling bullshit. You know, and seems so, like both those cases are examples where you have positive unit economics. Obviously, yeah. in the nonprofit yeah. context, that means something different than Airbnb. But Airbnb is fundamentally a sound business. Right? It is. Yeah. It is absolutely, and that's that's why I kind of, even though I, I love uh, Uber and Lyft and uh, Lyft in particular, I think the the entrepreneurs are idealists of, of in, in my stripe. You know, these are businesses that you know, don't have positive economics. And there's a real question with what the business is. You know, that's the thing that I guess I look at all the time. There's one kind of blitzscaling in which you raise money, you know where your crossover point is. 
you know, if you grow to a certain point, you will be profitable. There's another kind where maybe you never know and you're just kind of hoping. And there's another kind where maybe you know it will never be profitable and you spend a bunch of time trying to persuade people they should bet on you anyway because in the end, the business is the financial exit. And, you know, can you go public without ever, you know, as you're seeing many, many companies do today, go public without ever actually turning into a business that's profitable or even cash flow positive on the basis of the actual transaction with customers. And I, I consider that a kind of fraud. And I think we will look back on this period in Silicon Valley and it will be called a kind of fraud, just like the, the mortgages that were, you know, tranches and, you know, these CDOs that, that blew up the, uh, uh, the financial economy in, in the late, you know, 2000, you know, 2008, 2009, you know, these are not real businesses. Now, some of them are and, and hidden inside this sort of froth. There are businesses that are using blitzscaling correctly. That is, they see the crossover point and they're aiming for it and they're being very strategic about it in the way that Jeff Bezos was. You know, he, he really is probably the icon in many ways of blitzscaling, somebody who, who burned money, but knew where he was going and how to get there. Uh, but when you look at companies that, you know, years and years in are, you know, still losing billions. And when you press on them, you say they don't still don't even know how they will get to profitability. I consider that a kind of fraud. You know, the right answer for, for example, for Uber and Lyft, they are going to have to uh, raise prices. Uh, and it wouldn't have to be by that much, but it would slow their growth. And then their financial valuation would go down. So when here's the way I would tell, like if your business is less valuable as a real business than it is as a financial instrument, then maybe you have a problem. And, and you know, once capital is no longer so free, you're going to get bitten by that. I'm curious how you think about, I mean, you talk in the article about Lyft versus Sidecar versus Uber. I'm wondering how you think about, okay, I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm the Sidecar founder. Yeah. How do I think about these ideas? Because naively, you would say, well, I lost raising 35 million, I should have raised 350. Is the case you give a couple examples from your own um, career that you could feel free to talk about, where you talk about businesses where you, you looked at a line of business and said, I have a very profitable company. I don't want to play this split scaling game, I'm yeah. going to sell off this line of business. Should entrepreneurs think that way? I just shouldn't play in this uh, game? You know, it really depends on who you are. And I guess that's the thing that, that I, I think really distinguished my choices about that. Uh, and some of it came from just my history as, uh, you know, a, a business person. I didn't start as a tech entrepreneur. I started as a, you know, small business servicing, you know, as a consulting company servicing clients. And in the course of that business, I saw lots of, you know, tech startups. This is in the early days of, uh, you know, mini computers. I actually did a bunch of work for a company that was a competitor, Sun Microsystems, that got put out of business by them eventually. A couple of them, you know, uh, MassComp and Apollo and so on. And, you know, one of the things that had really struck me was I really liked the companies when they were small. And as they got bigger, I liked them less and less. And the motivations seemed different. And I thought, I don't want to be like that. And, you know, I've, I've sort of once said, and I guess it's probably the thing that I've said that's quoted more often than anything else. It's like, you know, money is like gas in the car. Uh, 
you don't want to run out and be on the side of the road, but you're not taking a tour of gas stations. And I feel like too many people in business are taking a tour of gas stations and they lose sight of what are you trying to build? And I was just looking to create an interesting workplace that would support me and the people who worked with me. I was trying to solve information problems for people, trying to be useful. And I wasn't ever thinking about the financial exit. And when we, a couple of times, we did hit on a rocket ship and, you know, I looked at it and I said, I'd have to take in venture capital. And I thought back to those companies that I'd seen and I went, I don't want to be that. I don't want to lose control of my company and have it be a place that I don't like and then have to start over uh, because I'll be out. You know, and it's just sort of looking at who I was and what I wanted. And so I think just being an entrepreneur, you really have to think about, you know, entrepreneur market fit as well as product market fit. I guess one way that I think about this and talk to entrepreneurs about this is to say, look, like, your market is destiny, right? And it seems like you're saying that to some extent here. We built this product. The market to maximize the opportunity is going to require a bunch of venture capital. Yeah. I don't want to do that, yeah. but the market requires it. Therefore, we're going to spin it off, sell it, or let That's right. Yeah. So we sold GNN, yeah. which was the first you know web portal, first advertising support website. We sold to AOL because I didn't want to take in venture capital. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that one of the things I really liked about this piece was it wasn't saying venture capital is evil and you should get yourself a flannel shirt and move to Portland and start a small business. No, no. Yeah. Which seems to be much of what the sort of the base criticism of venture capital is. These no, days. I, I think the, the, the first, I also talk in the article a little bit about what my partner Bryce uh, is doing with NDVC, which is to teach entrepreneurs that there's a broad bifurcation in businesses. And, and yes, some of it is this is a fast growing, high growth business. The, you know, this is one way that people divide the market, you know, where blitz scaling is appropriate. And this is a, you know, a low growth, uninteresting business for investors, right? Notice that's for investors. And that's just not how I divide the market. I divide the market into this is a, market that is for customers and this is a market that is for investors and i think there are a lot of companies that are for investors there i say i think that they are effectively financial products i guess the way that i think about it and you and i were talking a little bit before the podcast about um the business model of vc so there's what customers want or need. There's what entrepreneurs are trying to do, the problem they're trying to solve. And then there's these venture capitalists, um, some of whom are in the room, who have their business model. And it seems to me that some of the problem that leads to people being um, retrospectively upset about the partnerships they went into with venture capitalists is just being very naive about what the model is, right? Yeah. Um, and so... I'd love to hear actually your characterization of the VC business model and then maybe. We'll yeah. Well, I, th I think the fundamental, you know, point of the business of the VC business model is you have to raise money. You know, you need the entrepreneur to raise money and then you need the entrepreneur to grow the business in such a way that they can raise money at a higher valuation so that you can show and you need to do them quick, do it quickly so that you show a great IRR to your investors because that's what your business is, is being able to collect fees on money from your, your limiteds and to raise your next fund. And so rapid growth with step ups in valuation is the game that you're in. 
Now, if you're in an entrepreneur, you don't necessarily need a step up in valuation if you have real customers, if you're really trying to build a business for the long term. In fact, you may not want that at all, uh, you know, because you don't want another round. You're, you, you just fa- you got perfect product market fit. You know, Google didn't need to raise once they got to that 36 million. They didn't ever need to raise any more money. And, you know, I, I think that's a better business overall and actually even better for the VCs. But there's sort of a way that, you know, in some sense, this we're going to work to step up the valuation, get other people to buy in is a way of, of manipulating the market. Yeah, I guess my way of, of describing it to an entrepreneur would be to say, understand how big a venture capitalist fund is, and then understand what percentage of that fund they're giving you. So if they have a $20 million fund, and they're giving you a $250,000 check, they're assuming that that check, if you are a good company, is going to return that entire fund. So you can kind of do the math on the multiple, and then actually double or triple it again, because they're assuming dilution in subsequent rounds. And that needs to be the magnitude of the exit for their that's business right. model to work. And that's fine if that's the way that you see the opportunity. Um, but I think too often what ends up happening is that's not at all how we're thinking about it going in. We're saying, oh, let's raise a little bit of money. I need a million and a half dollars to make a decent business. And then you wonder why those investors are incented to push you to scale quickly or grow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I've seen a lot of businesses that have basically blown up because it was actually had the potential to become a good, steady growing business. Kind of like mine. I mean, over 40 years, I built a business that has a couple of hundred million dollars in revenue. That's, you know, profitable, cash flow positive with lots of money in the bank, but nobody would have invested in that and they shouldn't have. It's, it wasn't, you know, it took, Frickin' 40 years. You know, but anyway, but what we've tried to do with NDBC is to look for more businesses like that, you know, where you say, okay, what could a venture capitalist bring to a business that's focused on building a business that they don't want to exit from, that they want to uh, just grow and keep doing? And, 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 you know, obviously there's a bunch of services that a VC can bring, you know, just in terms of expertise and connections and so on. And also the ability to flip the switch if you discover that you're in the middle of a, of something explosive that, that, but you know, what we've tried to do with NDVC is to create more optionality for entrepreneurs. So, you know, uh, you know, we basically have created a, or I should say Bryce, uh, Roberts, my partner has created a, um, you know, it's effectively a convertible note that's repayable through dividends rather than, uh, you know, just through conversion. So you can effectively buy out the investor. And it's, 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 it's interesting because we actually had a company in our traditional portfolio that actually did that to, uh, you know, in, in one of the earlier OATV funds. This company got to be 40, 50 million dollars in revenue, you know, generating, you know, 10, 15 million dollars a year in positive cash flow, uh, profit. And they're like, so tell me again why we should be shooting for the moon. We just want to keep sitting under this nice waterfall of money. So can we buy you guys out? You know, and, and you go, why wouldn't you want to do that? Why would you want to, you know, the VCs might want you to kind of bet big and, you know, go big or go home. But maybe you don't want to go home. Maybe you just you like the business that you're in and you want to keep doing it. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to see more of this built into the front end of even venture deals because it seems like there's a real problem in seed venture capital today where 
you know, we go into this together and you and I both think this has a billion dollar opportunity and we just learn in retrospect that it actually wasn't. And then what do you do with this perfectly good business that would otherwise be a zero to me? Um, Today, I think our best answer is, well, I'm just mentally going to call it a zero and keep playing for that 1% that's going to return my fund 10 times over. Yeah. And there there may be better opportunities, but it becomes messy if you're trying to deal with that after the fact. That's right. And the entrepreneur sense. really, you know, they, they kind of have the weight of this cap table and they can't, they, you know, if they do need to raise more money, they really can't. Certainly not from venture capitalists. Yeah, yeah exactly. the next yeah. round or looking at it. I think this is particularly a problem in a seed world where it seems to me that and a reasonable assumption of entrepreneurs is, well, if someone gave me $2 million, this must be a venture scale opportunity. And the problem is, in fact, there are many seed funds that are writing checks into these things, not really thinking very deliberately about that. But once you've raised that $2 million, you're kind of on that track. So I think entrepreneurs should not assume that uh, the venture capitalist necessarily is making a good decision on the front end of that and, and yeah. sort of think for themselves. Well, that or, and that they'll keep making the same decision. With more information. Yeah. Going. And there's, there's yeah. sort of a lot of, I think a lot of businesses fail that could have succeeded and found their way through. Now, there is an argument to be made and a very real argument that the market is more efficient when you, you get to that point of failure and, and move on and people try something else. But if I, I look at my business career and I go, well, I would never have done a lot of the things that I did. I, it was just all, it was all about trying to meet customer need. The, the first two books I published, I mean, we were a consulting company and then we go, let's put some people to work doing things in their spare time. And the first two books I published had print runs of a hundred copies each. And those two books went on over next 20 years probably sell well over a million copies and they're both still in print. I mean, I almost 40 it, years later. It seems <laughs> to me you can believe two things at the same time. One is that the market is pretty yeah. reasonable, right? Yeah. We get a lot of innovation. Yeah. We could argue whether there could be more or less. Uh, the people putting money into this thing are doing reasonably well. And if they're yeah, losing yeah. money, they're consenting adults. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, entrepreneurs are sometimes making choices that lead yeah. to them wasting years of their lives or maybe getting into a position where they can't push a business business forward. And that, that in my mind, is the uh, non-renewable resource, right? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, yeah. One of the key misalignments is that venture capitalists have much more diversification, many more shots on goal, 20 shots, 50 shots, hundreds of shots, uh, whereas entrepreneur just says they're one shot. Uh, a company I'm, uh, help, uh, I've helped start is exploring the sort of product that around the income share agreements space. Could you give founders that same diversification by all pulling up all the uh, village global founders or Sequoia founders and saying, Hey, we're all going to give, you know, get a certain percentage of each company so that the entrepreneur now has the diversification that the venture capital have uh, that the VC has. Would that solve a, a key issue for, for you, Tim? Or do you think that's sort of besides the point? No, I think it's an interesting model. And in fact, uh, my son-in-law has done something like that. He's actually done a, a couple of innovative things. So this is again also ex- expanding the possibility space of how do you do a business, you know, beyond the just you go to a, you know, a VC firm and raise money. Uh, he has a company called Other Lab. It's an engineering invention factory, so to speak. And they generally have funded themselves through government grants. You know, so they're, they're really like a federally funded research and development company, but just not a, a officially chartered one. So, you know, NSF grants, DARPA grants, uh, RPE. Uh, so they, com- they develop a technology and then when they actually have it working, 
They also they do it for stuff for commercial clients. When they actually have it working, they spin it out. And all of the people, they're in a kind of a cooperative because all the people who work there get shares in each of the companies. And they've spun out, I don't know, probably a dozen companies, maybe more than that, and some of them quite successful. And, and so there are other models, and it's well worth just expanding the vocabulary and the thinking with which entrepreneurs you know, go to market and try to build things. The thing that, to me, needs to shift more than anything else, though, is understanding. I, I didn't ever finish my quote where I said there's two kinds of businesses, the one that's sort of really about the, where the actual output is stepping up the valuation of your business, and the other is one that's based on cash flow and profit. You know, are you actually getting people to pay you for what, what you do, and uh, is that, that becoming sustainable? You know, is it non, a good ongoing business? And we need more of those you know, in tech. What happens? I mean, it seems like that must be the end game for all of these businesses, right? Like we're valuing these things either on growth or on profits. So Amazon, I'm, there's a Jeff Bezos quote that I, I'll paraphrase. It's something to the effect of you can sell investors growth or you can sell them profits, but don't confuse the two. Yeah. Um, and he's done that successfully for 20 years. Yeah. Presumably, that's the story that the Lyfts and the Ubers and so on and so forth are telling themselves. It seems like those businesses become sustainable, maybe at the cost of shareholder value, quote unquote, right? But that seems like consenting adults making bets on these things. Is that that not okay? Yeah, it it is. I, I guess where I, you know, kind of look at the difference, you know, Jeff always knew what he was building and he knew that it was, you know, going to be a, a successful business, albeit a low margin business originally. And he understood the cash flow dynamics of that business and it was positive cash flow, you know, even though it wasn't profitable. You know, and, and the fact is you can tell that because Jeff raised debt. You know, a, a lot of the, you know, people forget when they say, well, you know, Amazon lost billions. They didn't lose billions against venture capital, they lost billions against debt where Jeff borrowed against the cash flow of the business and serviced the debt, you know, with that cash flow. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, that's one reason why he owns more of the company. And that's, again, another piece of, you know, increasing the vocabulary. Actually, and I had a, just a, a kind of a wake up call for this, you know, myself when we were, we had started a, you know, one of my versions of, of other people's money. You know, what was joint ventures? You know, I started my international companies originally as a joint venture and then eventually used the proceeds of a spin out to buy back, buy, buy back that joint venture. We started what was called Safari as a joint venture with Pearson. That was really after the dot com bust. We just didn't have the money. We also needed, we, we saw that as a cooperative. We wanted to get our biggest competitor under the, the tent, but we bought them out, you know, in 2014 after, you know, running as a joint venture for 14 years and we used debt because the, Cash flow of the business supported it. And so, you know, effectively, uh, you know, I was sitting there, you know, uh, saying, well, I wonder if we need to raise money to buy them out. And I actually talked to a friend of mine who's a, a VC, but a fr- more a friend than a VC he said, Tim, I would love to invest in your business, but I've looked at these financials. Why aren't you doing it with that? <laughs> you know? And, and I, I love him for that. That was Ralph Turkowitz at ABS Capital. That's really something about, you know, a VC who you should uh, always want to work with is somebody who actually does think about what's good for you 
Well, and hopefully once the VCs are in there thinking about that as well. I mean, the last yeah. thing I need is, you know, a hundred millions of preference on top of my investment where yeah. you can build a perfectly good business and, yeah. and we don't get it back. Um, I actually feel like there's quite a few opportunities now to do more uh, debt type offerings for startups and small businesses. And you're starting to see some of those, the yeah. clear banks of the world. But actually, venture debt is one that really there just are not enough folks thinking about. But, but, but even there, though, I still have to say, you know, it's all too much caught up in the cheap capital uh, that we've seen, you know, really since 2009. Mm-hmm. I, I think that when capital is more expensive, it will be deployed more wisely. I think that's right. I mean, I think something that I didn't understand until I was in venture um, that maybe might not be obvious to the listeners and potentially relevant if you think that there might be a downturn. There's a lot of venture capital because interest rates are effectively zero and venture is theoretically a you know 10 or 15% return at a high risk. So that sounds pretty good today. Um, but if it were 1977 and interest rates were, you know, credit card level for houses, that would be a terrible return. And it's not like venture returns go up just because interest rates go up. So we are in this weird world where all of this money is trying to flow in and probably too much into this space. Um, and you can make a bet on that continuing to be true or not continuing yeah. to be true. Um, and it, it may, may matter to you at some point. Yeah. And does that mirror what happened in? Since 2008 or 2009, or, or is that the sort of the story of? Well, I think you know, the, the thing about 2008, 2009 that's very different was that was really systemic because, you know, quite frankly, much as we all love tech, you know, real estate and the whole financial market is actually a much bigger, bigger industry. And uh, the, the fact that uh, banks are much more systemically important to the society than, uh, you know, your average uh, tech startup. So if, if we all go bust, it'll be much more like 2001 than, you know, 2009. And, uh, I do think that, you know, it's somewhere in our near to middle term future that it will go bust. And, you know, San Francisco real estate prices are going to come down and, uh, the streets, you know, the, the, the roads are going to be empty again and, and a lot of people will be moving out of state. What do you think that looks like? I mean, there's these companies with poor unit economics, right? So in my mind, bust means, all right, everybody has to right-size their business to positive unit economics of some sort. Maybe the public companies lose some valuation. It doesn't seem like the, you know, the SF apocalypse as it was in 2001. That seems like... No, I I disagree. I mean, what, what really happens is all these companies that are counting on their next round don't get it. Mm -hmm. And they're suddenly hit the wall because they're not a real business. They're basically, they're off the drip. They're dead. I mean, an Uber and a Lyft, we could think of some examples. It seems to me like you look at an Uber or a Lyft and you say, okay, well, you have to raise your prices. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uber and Lyft are out of scale. I mean, to me, they're not going to go away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once you get to a certain scale, it's very hard to, you know, kill a company. But, you know, there are awful lot of startups that are just a gleam in somebody's eye that, you know, are expecting that they have three, four, five rounds ahead of them before they get to profitability. Mm-hmm. And they're just, you know, and they don't have a, a, a switch to flip. So I actually do think that there will be, you know, a, another meltdown. And I do think if I were kind of a budding entrepreneur, the first thing I would be doing is, you know, looking for a business with, you know, 
real customers who give you money and and give you get you to positive cash flow. Mm-hmm. I mean, that certainly seems to me to be an easier business to build in many sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, well, there's also just a lot of niches that are not, yeah, that's right. You know, um, being filled uh, while everybody's out there sort of chasing the super high growth business opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, many, many opportunities. Now, there are also opportunities, I think, that could use real R&D capital, mm-hmm. which is, is kind of, in some ways, uh, a different category. Yeah, that used to be venture capital, right? Yeah, that used to be venture capital. And now venture capital is, no, we want to see that you have product market fit, and then we'll give you money. Well, it's yeah. technical innovation versus business model yeah. innovation. That's how I think about it, right? Business model innovation, once you unlock that growth loop, we can you know yeah. scale our Uber, um, whereas technical innovation is... But uh, I, I, there's sort of another category, though, which I think of as meeting up with the future at the right point. My, my favorite example of this both for good and for bad, is Sidewalk Labs. Uh, and I look at Sidewalk Labs, I go, they are completely tackling the wrong problem. You know, we're going to build the city of the future. You know, and we're going to build, uh, you know, basically a high-tech suburb for, for techies. And I go, Jesus, there are, if I look at the 21st century, I go, there are going to be hundreds of millions of people who are being displaced and who are going to be in these you know, refugee shanty towns. And I go, the, one of the great opportunities of the 21st century is how do we turn all those refugees into settlers? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? And that, that's everything from how would we build a pop-up city that's better than, you know, what they're doing in China? You know, how would we build the, not just the, the physical infrastructure, but the social infrastructure of a city, you know, where we could use predictive data to figure out, you know, like it's all these people, how do we pull them together into what looks like a, you know, a, a function market economy? How do we, you know, what kind of sort of connection to the rest of the world that we need? You know, where are there new kinds of industries that might, might fit in? Same thing or re, that same thing is true. Rebuilding. Parts of, of 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 America, for example, that have lost their their way. There are new industries. That, what kind of know. innovation do you think is needed there? Because you could naively look at that and say, "Well, that's a policy problem. That's not a business problem." How do you think about it? Well, you know, policy problems in many ways are uh, are business problems. Yes, of course. Yeah. You know, it's just po- policy. You know, I mean, I, I think that's that's really something that we. We forget, you know, there's way too much of a sort of na- naive free market philosophy in Silicon Valley. Not nobody really realizes just how much the shape of our entire industry is the result of policy. Well, they're, they're related. But classically, people would say, "Look, the government should address market failures." So let's. Be but, sure it's not, but it's not just market failures. It's in, in a lot of ways. If, if you look at like, let, let, let's take you know, the, go the Green New Deal. You know, there's starting to be people going, oh, you know, actually, you know, all those old coal mines are great. Plant, you know, it's like solar plants take up a lot of land. Well, shit, we got this crap land that nobody wants, you know, and, and they're starting to actually build big solar installations, you know, in Appalachia, you know, and you kind of go, wow, uh, why didn't people see that market opportunity? And quite honestly, it is because there was this massive regulatory capture by fossil yeah. fuel companies yeah, yeah. that were basically keeping that entrepreneurial 
you know, opportunity from happening. So sometimes policy is figuring out how do you change the, the, the landscape in such a way that, that entrepreneurs can go to work. I guess I always thought of that particular one as a, a classic example of a market failure, which is, yeah. look, if you have an implicit subsidy of carbon, of course you yeah. produce a bunch of carbon as opposed to a bunch of solar because yeah, it's just yeah. cheaper because the yeah. government is paying you to do Although it. Although eventually it's actually, it is getting cheaper to do. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was going to have markets eventually brought up. It's just slowed it down. Yeah. All right, and circling back to uh, our topic at hand, uh, or closer to the center of it, you wrote in this piece, and I've always loved this quote, in the short run, the market is a voting machine, in the long run, it's a weighing machine. That's actually Benjamin Graham. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you, sorry, quoted you, it, yeah. you quoted it. Uh, that could be a Tim O'Reilly quote, but in yeah, this case, it wasn't. And you say, the losses from the blitzscaling mentality are felt not just by entrepreneurs, but by society more broadly. I'm curious if you could expand a little bit on that. Like, what's going to be the legacy of these? Of the, we, I mean, we talk about Lyft and Uber, but obviously more broadly, what's going to be the legacy of these companies as they go public? As they, yeah, um, take well, these- well, again, when you think about blitzscaling, think very, very broadly. You know, I mean, you could make the case that Walmart was a blitzscale company. You know, it's really I'm, I'm mainly talking about this sort of the, the drive for scale and speed and efficiency and you know, in some sense, market outperformance. Because in order to have market outperformance, you don't have to grow fast. You have to grow your profits over time eventually. And, you know, in, in that system, you know, humans are a cost to be eliminated. And so you go, you know, there's a, there's a lot of cost. But let's come back specifically to Uber and Lyft. And let's imagine a market that grew naturally. And, you know, and when I say naturally, I'm even thinking about tech markets like the personal computer, the World Wide Web. You know, the World Wide Web, there were lots and lots of companies trying lots and lots of things for a long time. It wasn't like, you know, uh, this new market came up, you know, and a bunch of people picked Google and poured a shit ton of money into it and had to take over the world. You know, it's like, there were a lot of companies competing and, and, you know, Google emerged out of nowhere in some sense in a, in a market segment that people thought, wow, well, that's really not going to amount to anything. Well, did, I mean, didn't Google emerge after people did that, right? It was the only right, right. But, but that's what I'm saying. So there was 10 years of experimentation. So the winner in this market happened to not be a blitzscaler if you look at it this way. Because that's right. That's what, that's, what I said. that's what I said. I don't yeah. think of Google as a, as a, as a, as a blitzscaler. And that's why I look at, at Uber and Lyft as, as real anomalies. The model, you know, was really introduced really in 2011. Don't you think Netscape was a blitzscaler? Yeah, Netscape was a blitzscaler. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, it and seems to... also flamed out. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they lost Microsoft, which, fair yeah. enough. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard to be yeah. not only the, yeah, you know, sure. the guy with the network effect, but also Internet Explorer. People don't remember it this way, but it was a phenomenal product. Yeah. Their product was actually better when they beat yeah. Netscape. So... It seems to me that, you know, the exception with Google was that if you look at the 90s, all of the stuff that flamed right. out just wasn't 10 times better technology. Right. Right? So this but, one, I, but I guess I'm still saying, like, if you, you look at the web, first started getting commercialized in 93. Yeah, that's because that's when we put out the first commercial website. Amazon's 95. Google's 98. You know, we don't really think of the, the real sort of internet era 
really taking off till after the dot com bust. I just think that this yeah, is some counterfactual. I mean, I, you know, I remember the people with the free computer. People would get free computers in my dorm room. There now you'd run ads on them. I think People PC was that the yeah, business, yeah, yeah. right? You got those. You've got the point cast of the world. You got all this. Right, but the point was that that you know the crazy times really started five six years in. Yeah, it seems like we got better at it. It yeah, seems like yeah. we just didn't know what we were doing. Um, and so you can look back and say, well, we experimented more, but that seems more a product of our ineffectualness. Maybe, maybe but I, I think if you look at the introduction of this sort of, you know, ride hail model, it really starts 2011. Even though Uber was founded in 2008, it was a, it was an SMS car. So, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, black car. Uh, black car service, uh, sidecar and Lyft really start 2011, 2012. And by 2014, like two years in, you know, it's like game over because so much capital has poured in to Uber and Lyft that there's no other opportunity in that space. I, yeah, I'm curious coming back to this question about what should entrepreneurs here do. Um, it seems like there's a prisoner's dilemma here mm-hmm. where if my competitor raises X amount of money and I don't, I yeah. can't build that sustainable business. I'm not sure what ends up becoming. No, I think I think that, that, that's fair. And, and certainly, you look at uh, uh, Uber and Lyft. Both of them raised a lot of money. But you know, I think one of the things that Lyft did that was quite smart was they said, "We're not going to fight on every front. You know, we're just going to do the U.S. market. That'll be our our, our advantage." And, and I think that that is, you know one way to respond to this, which is with focus. Although we've seen their um, filings, and they're no better than Lyft's. They're, uh, sorry, Uber's. Their their business is no better than Uber's. In fact, it's whatever it is, 10 times smaller in terms of value, not necessarily, or price, not necessarily value. Right. They're losing just as much money in this market. They just don't have those other markets to be diversified into. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that, that's fair. Although, I, I think in the end, I think if they had tried to Compete across all, you know, fronts. Uh, they would have lost badly if they. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, I, I think the blitzscaling image is great, and I actually ref- I kind of advert to this in in the piece. You know, General Hans Guderian, who invented the model for Hitler. Uh, you know, they 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 kind of swamped. Uh, you know, they swamped France. You know, they swamped Belgium. Uh, they swamped Poland. And, you know, then they, they went for Russia and they got overextended and, you is, know. Is the lesson there, don't invade Russia in the winter? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I guess there is a, a, a point where you look at these companies. It's like it works until it stops. Where well, they, Uber pulled out of China. Right. right. Uber did pull out of China. And then, you know, they, they've sort of managed to, you know, still retrieve, uh, some real value there. Uh, I think the self-driving car uh, market is. I actually think this. Well, self-driving car is a kind of invaded Russia inventor uh, for Uber, quite honestly. Yeah. And 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 for Lyft. And, and but I also think it's a. As I actually said in my book back in 2016, it's also kind of fake news, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, how do we convince the market that we will be much more valuable in the future because our economics will be able to profitable, yeah. You know, and, and, and again, maybe they really believed it, but it's interesting because I talked with the, the, the head of uh, you know, Google self-driving unit and uh, you know, I, I said this to me, yeah, why is nobody saying that? You know? 
they, they, they can't, they don't really have the ability to win at this. And I just drew that conclusion after they bought the auto. When they bought auto, and I got a, I got a demo in an auto. I mean, it's a grad student project. It's like, it was two guys with a big, and they were like, can we turn it on yet? You know, it's like, it, it could stay in the lane, you know, on, on, on one little stretch of highway. And, and it's like, this is not worth $800 million. And it was, it was signaling. And it was a lot like, and what it reminded me of was when AOL, which was not really an internet company, bought Waze and GNN and uh, Dave Weatherall's browser, I forget what it was called, to signal to the market that they were an internet company. And they rode that all the way up to buying Time Warner before everybody figured out that they weren't really an internet company. They were a dial-up company that yeah. was pretending to be an internet company. I guess I'm, I'm willing to give... Uber the benefit of that, the doubt on this, which is to say, you know, as they went into these projects, because they bought a lab at CMU effectively, right? Yeah, yeah. They bought an academic lab, they bought auto, they, they bought some other things. Yeah. I think that they thought at the time that they needed to own this technology. Yeah. And what was, what is probably true and what they came to believe was actually we don't need to own the technology. We need to own the users because yeah. we believe the technology will become I think that if they'd had less access to capital, they might have made smarter business decisions earlier, realizing that, oh, actually, we are a logistics company. Our fundamental competency is in, in sort of routing. And I, I think they could have, they could have gone in some very interesting other directions and turned themselves into a platform. For logistics. Yeah, that certainly seems to be true. I mean, you see that in startups, right? You yeah. will spend resources proportional to the money that you raise, regardless of whether you yeah. apply those resources efficiently yeah. at any stage. Yeah. It seems like you see that now in Uber's business as they look to food delivery, actually, right, as right. a big profitable growth area, which to your point is yeah. more thinking about how do we use these resources. Right. And I, I, I think that the, the thing that's really going to be interesting, I think, long term for Uber and Lyft is, you know, do they find a business that is actually a good business? You know, again, the thing that was really nice about uh, Jeff at, at Amazon was he knew what he had and he wasn't kidding himself. But I, 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 and both in positive and negative ways. I, I remember asking him early on about, you know, wasn't he worried about Google and cloud computing? He said, ah, you know, they have great margins. I mean, Google and Microsoft said, so they have great margins. <laughs> he said, this is just not going to be as good a business for them for a long time. And so they're not going to know how to invest in it. He says, I'm a retailer. It's a shitty business. There's no business I could be in that wouldn't be better than the one I'm in now. So I can invest in this and it's a better business for me. You know, and he was, he was right. You know, he, he kind of went all in on it because it was better for him. And so there's again something about self knowledge as an entrepreneur is one of your great weapons. And, and I think it's really easy to get caught up in chasing somebody else's taillights. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or infatuated with a lifestyle, which is this yeah. uh, judge yourself by valuation. Well, and, and, and just also just kind of like, oh, we have to do this thing. And I, I think remembering that your job is to see something that nobody else is doing and not to be, you know, me too. What do you, I'm curious how you think about there are policy opportunities here? So we're talking a lot about sort of the decisions the entrepreneur should make and how they should think about the world. And that's, in my mind, the, the most actionable thing here. I think venture capitalists are kind of in this world where we 
we have to operate in a world where there's a bunch of other venture capitalists doing stuff. Yeah. Some of those things we might not like. Yeah. And we should just try to find the fit with entrepreneurs where it is win-win to go build these things. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a set of policy opportunities here that could make tech, but maybe more broadly, um, healthier and producing more value as opposed to economic value? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I do. Uh, not going to be popular. Uh, I, I think that we have rewarded financial returns uh, over real world returns in our tax policy. You know, so you yeah. know, if I if I had a magic wand, I would make capital gains much much higher. <laughs> you know, because you should not make more money just because you have money. Yeah, capital, you know. And, and uh, yeah, we talk about you know economic rents. Capital is a, it, you know is is really where most of the rents live in our society now. And the fact is, when I think about what we call capital gains today, you know, think about these two different you know scenarios. You know, Larry and Sergey start you know Google. Mark starts Facebook. Jeff starts Amazon. You know, on down the list. You know, and they put decades of their life into it. And then uh, along comes a public market investor who buys a bunch of their stock and holds it for a year, and they get the same tax treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, which one needed to be incented to put their ass on the line? Yeah, yeah. You know, so I go, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of capital gains and a kind of, of tax treatment. If you, for long term, I, I built this thing, I, I held it, I made it, and there's a kind of Thing that's like I played the market, but you know, and I, instead of taking my money out in three months, I took it out in a year. Like those are not the same thing at all. Yeah, I mean, I once uh, expressed frustration about this to uh, Eric Reese, who I think is a portfolio yeah. founder of yours, right? And uh, said, you know, we could fix this whole dang thing if we just made short-term capital gains ninety-five percent. Said, well, yeah, but that's never going to happen. Yeah, no, I, I of course. Agree. I, of course, walked away and said, well, that's too bad. And he went and uh, started the <laughs> long-term stock exchange, right. which I'd love to hear you plug uh, because I think it's so amazing. Yeah, well, I, I, I think LTSC is great. It's a big, uh, bold, crazy idea. Uh, and the, 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 the fundamental idea is, is you know, the, the longer you hold shares, the more uh, voting power you have. And so this is a way to... Uh, and encourage investors to actually buy and hold a stock, not just for the entrepreneurs to buy, to effectively to buy and hold their own stock. And I think it would lead to, to much better uh, outcomes in the long run. And the way I, the other thing that I think uh, is really um, would be, a, and this is really true only for the biggest, most successful companies, but uh, companies should really get out of using stock-based compensation. And, you know, because it makes them vulnerable to that short-term pressure. You know, when you think about things like super voting stock that is supposed to give the founder outsized power, it doesn't really, as long as, uh, you know, you pay most of your employees and, you know, they have this huge stock-based component. You know, and, and a company like Apple or Google they, or Facebook, they can just pay their employees that amount of cash. And they come out and they're profitable enough and then they could thumb their noses of Wall Street. Go, yeah, tank our stock. We don't give a shit. We don't actually get anything from you. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what do they? What does Apple actually get from Carl Icahn, who basically says, "Do a buyback for me. Spend your cash on me." 
You know, it's like nothing. He's brought nothing to the table. Mm-hmm. He brought their paper. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. You know, and and uh, you know, they could say, great. You know, yeah, we don't need you guys anymore. We're, you know, and the, the reason why they can't do that is they need the stock to keep going up to be able to pay their employees, and they go just pay them out of freaking profits. You know, this is the best argument I've ever heard for uh, super voting shares not yeah. mattering. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way. Yeah, they don't because you know you can't hire the best people if the compensation is based in this this super money currency of of uh, appreciating stock. Yeah, but of course the tax treatment is different there, so you have bias towards uh, right. stock based compensation as well. Yeah, exactly, and that, that's again why you have to understand that it's it's in the it's baked into the system. To do it this way, and in mm-hmm. fact, that you can you can get create a discount on the. the it's not as true once you're public, but certainly for startups, you know, stock based compensation is you, you, you know, getting it a tenth of the preferred price typically. And yeah, which I mean, the counter argument there is when Google's paying somebody effectively two million bucks a year. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it creates a crazy market yeah, for, yeah. for these people. Yeah, yeah. People yeah. got to do something to get them to leave that job and join yeah. a startup. You alluded earlier to. Uh, in the future, we're going to look back at this time and say it was fraught, or there are part of the elements of it that were, that were fraught about it. I'm, I'm curious, you know, we haven't even really gotten into SoftBank, which is probably one of the biggest accelerators of, of, of blitz scaling. You know, about five years from now, 10 years from now, how do you think, what, what's, how's that going to play out? Like, what, what's going to fundamentally change or stay the same about how we sort of view? Uh, uh, I think what's going to happen is a bunch of these companies are going to get big, 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 big bloody noses and the whole thing is going to stop until it restarts. <laughs> and again, it'll be a reset of some kind. But uh, I, I think there's a huge amount of dumb money floating around right now. Yeah. And uh, I, I think, you know, in the long haul, first of all, I mean, if you read history, you realize that this is just one of many, you know, explosions of value. You know, over the years, and where value gets created is in different places, in different industries, and it doesn't last forever. Right. And I think there really is going to be a time when people will look back at Silicon Valley, kind of like they look back on, wow, you know, it's crazy. You know that Andrew Carnegie was the world's richest man, and he made it in steel. Right. You know, and actually, it's still steel billionaires in India. You know, being made. You know, and it's time and a place. Uh, you know, there's actually cement billionaires in India, you know, <laughs> and then they'll look at this and go, wow, I, you know, and they'll visit, they'll visit Silicon Valley, kind of like they kind of visit Dearborn, Michigan, you know. <laughs> and so how, how should the Greylock, Sequoias, and other multi-billion dollar firms reorient themselves in your view? You know, I don't really have any advice for them. I mean, they, you know, again, I, I should just be clear. These people are way better at making money than I am. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've created a lot of value, and I'm very proud of that. I, but you know, in terms of, of turning that value into you know lots and lots of money, right? That's not my thing. And maybe we'll, we'll close on, on that. It's interesting. You were talking about, before this podcast about how you know when you write a book, that's thirty five dollars. Then Pierre Midiard go you know reads that book, is inspired, and then goes and creates eBay. That's a lot of value created yeah. by by writing that book. Tyler Cowen uh, has a view in, in stubborn attachments. That because we should value future lives as much as we value present lives, we should be optimizing for long-term sustainable economic growth because then it, then it gives more opportunities to, to future people instead of ourselves. And you, you seem to have potentially a different view of, of economic growth when you were talking about, Hey, if I'm a, if I'm an entrepreneur, why should I try to go big? If I'm happy, you know, I have more than enough money. And Tyler might well, say yeah. for future generations. Well, but sustainable 
right? economic right. growth is the point. Right. You know, and the fact is, is hyper growth sustainable? Now, I will say this, and, and, and it's, I, I just look for an intellectually consistent position. For example, Jeff Bezos at the Wired 25th anniversary celebration said something I thought was the best argument yet for a lot of this, you know, for one scenario, he, 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 they were asking, why is he investing in space? And he said, because I want us to, to, to be able to continue to be an energy intensive civilization. And I go, that's great because he understands that what we're doing now is not sustainable. And he's saying, here are the thing I have to invest in to be able to keep doing that thing that we like doing, which is growing. Now, a lot of what we are doing is we have this idea of hyper growth where we're just stealing from the future. And uh, I think uh, Jeff's right. You know, it's like there's choices we need to make if we want to continue to be an energy-intensive civilization. And I think there's other choices that, uh, again, scenario planning is great where you actually stretch the possibility space and you go, oh, we can do it that way, or we can do it by saying we're going to actually make a much more energy-efficient civilization and a much more sustainable civilization. And I think both of those are... Uh, really good possibilities. And I think it's really important to think through in the long run why we care about capitalism. And it's because it's an engine for human flourishing. You know, it has made the world more prosperous. But that doesn't mean it's perfect and that we can, you know, hand wave away any of the critiques of it. I think the point is it can be better. You know, our job as entrepreneurs, as policymakers, as concerned citizens should be to say, how do we take this thing which has made the world more prosperous and look at the things that it's doing wrong and make it better? You know, because it has also been driving inequality. And, and you know, everybody's kind of going, well, you can't address the inequality without losing that, that engine of capitalism. And I, you know, I was telling uh, Parker earlier about reading about Robert Boyd in Scotland in the 1700s. And they're saying, you can't Get rid of child labor without, you know, ruining this thing which is making us all so prosperous. And it's like, no, clearly we can see from where we are now that that was wrong. And, you know, it looks to me like you go, well, you know, the idea that we cannot have a prosperous, growing civilization while dealing with economic, I mean, with, uh, you know, with economic inequality, while dealing with the environmental impact, all of these things, when we bring those constraints into play, we're actually, we can build a growing, prosperous economy that makes everybody happier than we than one in which we're forced to exploit people, both as workers and as consumers, uh, in pursuit of, you know, making, uh, you know, company stock prices go up. Yeah. And uh, last question, your, your biggest recommendation to help reduce inequality would be go back to capital gains, or are there any other policy or... Well, I, I think in a lot of ways, I, I would just draw a broader frame because I'm not a tax policy expert. You really have to do the math. But I would say that it seems to me that tax policy is kind of analogous to Facebook's algorithms or Google's algorithms when we say what's driving the behavior, the incentives uh, in our society. You know, and so when we're saying, hey, you know, Facebook, you've got something wrong. We need you to fix your algorithms. <laughs> we need to do the same thing. And I think tax policy is a lot of where that happens. It's not the only place that it happens, but it's a big place. I'm curious. Um, so people often talk about inequality as the first order problem, right? As opposed to something like poverty. Do you see inequality as the first order problem? No, I see the, 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 
not inequality per se. You know, again, I feel like it's the, the everybody likes to make it into absolutes. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, Paul Graham, I think, once said, you know, it's like if you're... You're hunting me. Well, yeah, you're <laughs> hunting me or, you know, you're saying there could be no Larry and Sergey. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's bullshit. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, there was a time when, again, I think about the founding story of Silicon Valley, you know, people didn't have to make billions of dollars. Well, but you might look at some of the Democratic frontrunners today, right? I think about Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders' rhetoric about inequality. And it really seems to me that they are thinking about inequality as a first-order problem. Yeah, and and they're thinking about it very narrowly. I agree. I think when I think about inequality, I think about things like just the assumption that drive the math effectively that drives Silicon Valley choices. Let me give you an example of this. When I went to design a stock option plan for my company, as I kind of go, oh, you know, we got we got to actually start thinking about this after, you know. <laughs> Anyways, my first cut was as I thought about it without any consultants, without whatever. I just said, okay, we there's two things that we value. You know, we value that uh, people make. Differential contribution. There's some inequality in the system. You know, some people are more valuable than others. And I said, then look, what we pay people as salary is a good proxy for that. And we also value that people have been here a long time and have helped to build this thing. You know, the equivalent of capital gains, right? You know, if you were here 20 years ago and you built it from, from there to here, you know, we, we value that. So I came up with a stock option plan that basically was some multiplication factor between those two things. You know, you know, proportional to salary and proportional to uh, length of service. And it came out unequal, but not radically unequal. The people at the bottom were like maybe one order of magnitude away from the people at the top. And that seemed like a pretty fair system to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe, you know, and again, maybe you could get 20 times. You know, it's the same thing like CEO pay. You hear all these ratios. And then you go get the, the stock option consultants. And they go, oh, no, 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 that's not how it's works at all. If you want to attract the top talent, you know, and you look at how a typical Silicon Valley stock plan is designed. It is this is a machine for inequality. The person, you know, each level down is an order of magnitude less than the level before. So literally, by the time you get to the bottom of the, of the you know, the stock option stack, people at the bottom are getting 10,000th or a hundred thousand yeah, yeah. of what so people at the top are getting. And you tell me that you think it's that's really fair that people at the top are worth a hundred thousand times you know what people at the bottom are worth? And so I, I guess I just feel like we need to question, you know, like how much equality or inequality uh, you know is too much. Just like we go, you know, when does it become an externality? Yeah, you know, and in fact, you know, the fact that we have people who are not making enough to live on is an externality. The other thing that I think is a real category error that confuses this whole thing is I don't think we understand the the real source of where a lot of Silicon Valley wealth comes from, and it really is in the financial markets, and that really changes how you think about things. So again, diagnosing the problem correctly. And the way I like to think about this is every time I hear somebody say, you know, Amazon should pay its workers more after all, Jeff Bezos is worth $159 billion and was before he got divorced, uh, and, you know, people are not making minimum wage, I go, they don't actually understand that. Jeff Bezos is worth $159 billion precisely because 
he pays those people that money. And it's not like he could take that and, and spread it over those people because guess what? You know, Jeff Bezos' actual, you know, share of the pie is not that big, mm-hmm. you know, because the pie is not that big. I've actually done the math. Yeah, I've done the math as well. Yeah, it would be worth like $4 billion if he had his share of, of the ownership of Amazon's collective profits over years. And, and you know, and actually the profits of the of the e-commerce business, you know, there's just not that much to go around, yeah. you know? And so there's sort of a, a level that we live in two different financial systems, two different economies, and there's a set of people who have figured out that the way you make lots and lots of money is in this second betting economy, and uh, the people who are not in that economy are just kind of screwed. And I think that we we need to look at that and, and debug it a little bit. And I think... You can have a hell of a lot. There's a hell of a lot of inequality that can be removed uh, between you know the scale at which the people at the top are, are being compensated, the people at the bottom, and, and we've plenty to go around. And uh, we, cool. I think we could do better to uh, to make a plug on this uh, stock compensation uh, piece. I don't know if you saw this. Andrew Mason, who founded Groupon when yeah. he uh, founded his next company. He put together a really thoughtful uh, stock compensation plan, and it sort of was popular for a day, and everybody kind of read it and forgot about it. But I just thought this thing was super interesting. Um, It's worth looking at and sort of thinks about how you design a system where um, if the thing is a $100 billion company, he sort of says, well, I don't need a $100 billion. No one needs that much money, right? So there's sort of a threshold over which um, the returns start getting distributed in a more even way. I like it, yeah. And I think to me, this is a really interesting tool Mm -hmm. um, that would create some really interesting dynamics in early-stage startups in terms of... um, I think we have this problem where, to Derek's point earlier, you know, if you've got a portfolio of one every year or two, yeah. it's financially rational to say sort yeah. of like, where is the next place to jump? How do I diversify my portfolio? Yeah. So it leads to this crazy thing in Silicon Valley where everybody's spending one or two years at a place and then jumping somewhere else. And yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of interesting models from the past. And it's interesting, this book uh, that I very recently called The Benevolent uh, Capitalist. It's kind of history of a lot of these attempts, and one that's very relevant to that is J.C. Penney. I, I was not really aware that their original model, uh, uh, you know, that he came up with was uh, he basically each new store the manager was sort of like the founder of a new store mm. and got a, got a cut, and then it got too complicated because there were all the every store was a special deal, and then it became this thing where. Everybody got ownership, but it was sort of proportional to the, the size of their store and its profitability. And then they basically got dividends out from the performance of all the stores. And that worked really well until J.C. Penney got overextended. He kind of, as he, you know, it was so successful and, and, and he basically took a bunch of his money and he bought into banking in the late 20s. That, that went uh, uh, went very badly for him, and he had to sell all this. He, he basically basically they had to sell a bunch of company stock to outside investors, and at, at that point, the whole thing was over. You know, so if, but there is that guy. There are alternate models, and I think there's also alternate models. Just even in you know, look at a call up like REI. You know, it's like they're they, they perform better than all the public market competitors. In every real world measure, you know, same store sales, growth, et cetera, et cetera. 
they just don't make more money for their investors because they don't have investors. They give it back to their customers. And, you know, we just lose sight. And we don't talk enough about alternate models mm-hmm. for running a business. Yeah, a book that I always love to plug, I think I probably uh, tried to get you to read it at some point, Eric, is a book called The Mystery of Capital, which is effectively, it, the uh, the book is really about how do you design um, emerging economies such that they create wealth, yeah. right? Like, and he talks about sort of the, you can pour a bunch of aid in, doesn't work, but if you create certain yeah. structures, legal, regulatory, whatever, people can do yeah. fine uh, for themselves. But um, my takeaway from this book was, oh, we can just create a fiction, right? This contract between you and I, stock, whatever it is, right? Stock is one fiction. We just, not a real thing. We just kind of make up this concept and then we can use it to create value or miscreate value, however you want to think about it. And it caused me to think more about, well, maybe I should approach this deal from first principles. You're the yeah. entrepreneur, I'm the investor. Yeah. We can just take this note off the shelf that Paul yeah. Graham wrote, or we can actually just think about an agreement that is better for us. Yeah. And something that I'm excited about today is it seems like there are more and more, I mean, venture was the alternative model and it still is relatively tiny. But it seems in the modern context, like it is the default for far too many people. Yeah. And now you're starting to see the NDVCs of the world and yeah. the tinies and the long-term yeah. stock exchange. And it seems like there is this proliferation of new good ideas that might yeah. be better fits for entrepreneurs. I'm sure we can, yeah. there are a bunch we didn't list here. I mean, I'm excited about this period, but also I think that once you see an alternative, you start to say, well, Maybe I can think of one too, as opposed yeah. to accepting the default. So my, my hope would be that a takeaway for entrepreneurs listening to this is, um, Hey, look, if the way that everybody else does it doesn't make sense for you, come up with a better idea. Um, yeah, I like that. So I would be curious. I don't know if you had any other questions, Eric, but I would just be curious to hear, you know, in closing, um, what kind of advice you would have for entrepreneurs who, you know, are getting ready to go build something or they've started building something and they're trying to figure out, you know, how to make good decisions for themselves and their companies? Uh, I guess the main thing I would say is you have to know what you are trying. Well, no, I take it back. No, it's not right. I was going to say you have to know what you're trying to build. Like, oh, that's not true. I didn't know what I was trying to build. <laughs> I, I knew what I wanted it to feel like along the way. And, uh, uh, and I knew, you know, a bunch of conditions that I wanted to meet, but, you know, kind of understand, you know, you knew what trade-offs you were. Yeah. 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 Knowing yourself and knowing your market and trying to get a fit between yourself and your market and, and raising money as a tool, not as a, it should be, it's a tactic, not a strategy. And, and realizing that there are a lot of different ways to raise money particularly if you have positive cash flow. We've had this massive distortion because of ad-supported businesses. And if you're not in an ad-supported business, uh, you, you may actually uh, find that figuring out how to price your stuff so that people pay you enough to do it is a good idea. And I think there's a lot more economic work that needs to be done by companies to understand how to be good at their business. And, and that's a combination of financial understanding as well as everything else. And I, I think I wrote a piece years ago called How I Failed, sort of really about how it took me too long to get a really good CFO and how somebody who really helps you understand the financial dynamics of your business uh, is super important. So you can 
have great product, you can have great marketing, and if you, you know, you don't get the financial side right, you can really uh, do badly. I look at, you know, just to give you a brief example, this is not really, we're running awfully long here. In the 90s, you know, when I was primarily a book publisher, our average revenue per title across all our books is $250,000. After the dot-com bust, it fell to $60,000. During the 90s, we continually had to sell things in order to meet payroll. You know, we basically had, you know, we sold GNN, we, you know, uh, uh, sold something called Web Review that we created as a joint venture with AOL. We sold, uh, we, we had fun, I don't remember when we sold blogger, that was about 2003 or so. We had invested in blogger, we had Google stock, you know, which we ended up having to sell. Well, you know, rather than holding on to, we had to sell our AOL stock rather than holding on to it because we needed to meet payroll. And then after the dot com bust with a really good financial person, our average revenue per title on our books fell to $60,000, like a quarter of what it had been. And over the, you know, the 20 years since we put, you know, 30, 40 million dollars in the bank, you know, and, and again, we did get into other businesses as well, but, but really the point was, you know, she went out and she renegotiated contracts, uh, you know, focused on efficiency. You know, we just really kind of ran a much tighter ship because we had to, and suddenly we're putting money in the bank on what from a top line basis was a way worse business. And I think that, that, uh, one of the things that too much cheap capital does, it makes you forget that running a tight ship matters. On that note, Tim O'Reilly, uh, Parker Thompson, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.